Welcome to Four Quarter Lives, a podcast exploring the profound impact of longer, healthier, and more engaged lives, not only for ourselves and our couples, but also for companies and countries. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and on this week's Four Quarter Lives, I talk with Nick Palmarini, the director of the UK National Innovation Centre on Aging, or NICA for short. NICA is based in Newcastle and was launched with support from the University of Newcastle and the UK government. Now its goals are going global, and it wants to add intelligence to aging and longevity and to support businesses in harnessing the opportunities of the longevity economy. How? Through human experience, ethics, data, collaboration, and some pretty innovative new approaches and thinking. Nick Palmarini is well-placed to do this. Prior to heading up NICA, he was the head of AI for Healthy Aging at IBM Research and AI ethics lead and research manager at the MIT IBM Watson AI Lab, an academic industry partnership for the responsible advancement of artificial intelligence. Nick's specialty, connecting dots across disciplines that bridge academic and industrial research to real world applications. You'll quickly hear he's got a pretty original perspective. So, Nick, welcome to Four Quarter Lives. Delighted to have you. Oh, my pleasure, Aviva. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, so, let's get quickly to the chase. What is NICA and why is it necessary now? <laughs> well, NICA stands for the UK National Innovation Centre for Aging. It's been established by funding from the UK government and Newcastle University. So, we are literally hosted within Newcastle University. We're a co center to the university. We're based here in Newcastle in the Northeast. And I think the mission stands in the name. The key drive for us is the innovation associated to the world aging. So we tend sometimes to give more weight to the word aging while, while the key word is innovation here. Why innovation? Because the innovation is needed to make a change. We are seeing and an, we're the witness of so many innovations happening around us from a technological perspective, business model, processes, desire, human rights, all of them are in a are challenge on one hand, but at the same time are changing and innovating. Why? Because we are changing. The world is changing. We as the inhabitants of this planet are changing. Therefore, the job of, of the center is just to intercept this innovation, to look forward what is meaningful in terms of, uh, let me say, empowerment of the new society. Let me put the new in brackets that we all are envisioning by scouting what are the trends happening and innovation happening, but involving the people at the source of this innovation. Can we design an innovation that is, yes, led by the big mainstream that we are all assisting at, but at the same time, what matters to people, what is relevant to people, what is the quote-unquote voice of the people in this discussion about an innovation that it's so important for us because we're not experienced about how we how we'll be in the future. We're quite experienced how we were. We all had an experience at school, for example, but do we have a personal, our own experience of our process of aging? We don't. We rely on the experience of our fathers or grandfathers but they are different from us. And therefore, the innovation is also needed to understand how we will be, what is our progress in the society and how we want to shape it mainly. You're going to try and get us to keep up with our future selves, if I understand you right. Yes. The fact <laughs> that we don't know these selves, it's so hard to predict if you don't start 
leveraging, let me say, some of the techniques that we use in many other sectors with a lot of prediction. And let me use a, let me say, kind of a strange comparison, but it works about weather. And if you think about uh, how much we knew about the weather forecast 30, 40 years ago, they were not reliable at all. And now we have models and now we have data that they are suggesting us how weather is going to be not only tomorrow, but maybe in a week or in a month. Can we apply the same logic and techniques, understanding who we were, seeing what's happening in the future? What are the trends, what factors, what are the data available that can help us understand it? We think, yes, that's exactly what we do at the center. I like that. A different kind of weather map for the future. Yeah. yeah. So, so tell me, what stakeholders does Nika bring together to create this kind of innovative disruption? So we are an open innovation center. An open innovation suggests that you can develop your own innovation where you have the expertise and the capacity to do it. But by design, you are open to others. Wherever you see there's an opportunity that requires other types of competencies. So by design, we're open to invite others to join us in a journey of shaping a new narrative. And you are part of this narrative as, I mean, we're so honored to have you with us in this journey. And it's not just a cheesy comment. The point is that we're looking for innovators in the space of our lives. Let me tell you, there are many, but not that many. So it's not easy to bring forward this type of of conversation with many others because somehow aging and the space of longevity, which is now taking somehow the lead as a definition about our future selves, as you well described, it's still related to quite traditional processes. Again, is a domain which is not easy to tweak in terms of adding those innovations that we're just discussing before. So we're looking for those stakeholders that are open to have a discussion on how we can change the narrative first. There's a lot related to the stereotypes. There's a, there's a lot related to discrimination around aging. But as well, there's a lot related to business model about aging, related to factors that influence our health that will not consider the behavior first or education or the societal elements around our process of aging, which are ancillary to the, let me say, big bubble of the healthcare. Most of the discussion are focus on the healthcare, but health, health sorry, is uh, defined, is determined by many factors where the pharma or the biological factors are just a small portion of it. It's strongly related, obviously, to the climate change. Yes, genetic factors. But what about, again, our education? What about where you are born? Yeah. Your postcode is literally a definition of your process of aging. And again, your behaviors are a definition of your process of aging. Can we tweak them? Can we make an intervention there? That's where the stakeholders that are working with us are part of. Yes, I love that summary that our postcode is the most impactful piece of data about our life expectancy that we have. It's an astonishing discovery. So you've identified, Nick, 10 steps to prepare for what you're calling the second billion. What is the second billion? And what are your most urgent priorities in this presentation, in this preparation? What do we have to have up front? That's uh, a good point. Thank you, Aviva. So what is the second billion or who is the second billion? I think that's the right question. The second billion is the second billion of uh, over 60 that will be on this planet by 2050. And it's a, a number that it's uh, ramping up, which is literally ahead of us. And I would say it's tomorrow. 
So if you think about the second billion and if you think about the experience of aging, we can go back. That's a very individual experience. So theoretically, we have two billion people that will have new experiences that we will have to fulfill or we will have to understand that we will have to intercept because are those two billion experiences that will define the society of tomorrow. So that's the second billion that we had a, we have ahead of us. And if you think about in perspective, if we are able to intercept that second billion already today, it means that we're not waiting them to switch from uh, 59 to 60 and therefore they are the second billion. They are right. ready the second billion. So the second billion is working with us. And we have to engage them today, work with them today, help them to help us to understand what could be the changes that are needed between now and then. So the life transition will be, I would say, is more easy. I think it's a silly to keep on, you know, doing the same mistake, try to avoid the topic of us getting older and then suddenly discover we're old. Right. If this is the second billion ahead of us, what is the most urgent priority? I would pick one, and it's related to the discussion we had before about the innovation. I think we're now focused too much in innovating about the what. So you see a lot of investors and a lot of efforts. I would say it's all, uh, let me say, well done. I'm not saying it's not necessary. They are desperately needed. But more in looking for vertical solutions, in finding the, let me say, the solution to a pain point or to a problem or to an issue, but doing a lot less innovation in the house. So what are the big changes? What are the models that can help us to empower that innovation, to deliver more, I would say, startups, which are delivering back again to us meaningful solution instead of keep on replicating the same redundant one. So there's a lot of loss in our opinion in not leveraging the existing and therefore finding systems so the how and how we can leverage the existing that could be already helpful for us. And we tend to reinvent the wheel most of the time. So can we do a lot more on the how instead of keep on focusing on the what? That's a question that we would like to put on the table. So, Nick, have you done this before of the shift of focus from how to what in other dimensions of your life? Give me a little bit about your background and how you came to lead Nika and why you're so passionate of so much of the behavioral shift that you're trying to orchestrate. Oh, so I have a background in, uh, I would say, is in, in, in technology. So I've been working for IBM uh, almost 20 years of my life. And I started working in IBM uh, literally at the when the bubble was almost exploding. So at the, at the beginning of the internet era, it was such a fantastic moment because we literally could see what could be the potentiality of technology. And at the same time, since then, what could be the challenges from the, the technology versus the people? So I started working heavily on human-computer interactions and the usability and the accessibility of machines which roughly in 2008 drove me to explore more, not only the bare usability, accessibility for all, but for special categories. So I did a lot of work with persons with disability. And let me say, it was a quite wrong transition thinking, oh, you're disabled, therefore this could be also helpful for old people, which was where I started. I was literally... Let me say, imprinted. In you're, the you're not the you're not the only one who goes. No, from I one was to literally the, the the tangible example of the stereotypes that then I understood along my career. But at the beginning, it was so logical. Oh, you're getting old, therefore you're almost blind, and therefore you need big characters on a computer screen, which is absolutely needed. Do not misunderstand me. But it, it's a classic way on how we see the process of aging, like a disease. 
So since then, I started understanding the differences. I did uh, what it's called the first of a kind project in which we are we're fusing data coming from people in their day-to-day lives and analytics. At that time, we were calling it that way. <laughs> and it was uh, 2010. And that opened me the chance to understand the life of people because I started working heavily on understanding the behaviors through technology. At the time, I was working in a unit in, a, in I was uh, the director of a unit in IBM that was based in France, was a human-centric solution center. That job was brought so far by us that the mother company, so IBM Research in the US, saw that we were just developing something new. So they asked me if I wanted to become the leader of what is called AI for Healthy Aging. And I joined the team in IBM Boston in research in 2014. I lived there for seven years of my life. I was at the MIT, IBM, Watson, and iLab, caring also about the ethics of data. I did a lot of work on that side. And I have been offered the position of the director of NICA, which was a, a no-brainer for me because it allowed me to, let me say, put in practice a lot of my learning and understanding in a big corporation to build from scratch an innovation entity on aging that was missing, which is still missing, in my opinion, in the market. I guess we're between the few. One of the reasons that easily suggested me that was the right choice is that I also could have the chance coming here in Newcastle to work with the people. Professor Lynn Corner founded 15 years ago a community called Voice, which is based here in Newcastle and in the Northeast, mainly at the beginning. And it's a community of people over 50, 55, but that originally was built to support the Faculty of Medical Sciences at the Newcastle University. So when I joined here working with Lynn Corner, we started shaping the community as an engine of knowledge and insight for the innovation. So right now, voice has become an integral part of the National Innovation Center for Aging. We're working in a flow where we engage the people and ask them to support in our choices and the decision we make thanks to their intelligence. And we empower that intelligence with the intelligence from machines. So therefore, the combination human plus machine is is somehow the shortest ways to, to tell what we do. And now we are bringing this experience abroad because another big point of it that is must be told is that we're aging, let me say, in similar way as human beings in many factors, but culturally, it's very different. So the process of aging that is coming from Southern Europe, the North America, Canada, or, or Brazil is very different. In China or in Japan, for example, you age gracefully or you aim to age gracefully. In Brazil, you age beautifully. And you must respect this cultural heritage. Therefore, our idea is just can we, let me say, export the model of voice to engage the citizens and gather also the different cultures at the source and embed in in a global discussion about what are the drivers for the future. Because we have to scout innovation, not necessarily in the classic white Anglo-Saxon Protestant kind of a background. There are so many nuances that we can explore that can help us design better solutions that not necessarily are relevant only in one country. Something good in in South Africa could be very good in China as well. Why not? And that's where we're doing. Yeah, so Voices is almost like a sister organization where you've got the tech AI innovation side and then you've got the real-time connection with real humans testing and iterating around the innovations that you're trying to bring. There there are thousands of people now involved in Voice, as I understand it. I mean, I couldn't say it better. So thank you for the the nice summary. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we are more than 4,000 in the UK right now. 
And we have a community running already in Canada, in China. China is such an important lens for us. They already 250 million people over 60 in China today. It will be 420 by 2050. Therefore, it's literally a mirror of what's going to happen to all of us in the future. And we already opened a community in Italy literally three weeks ago. So we're launching operation in Italy by, in September. And we have in the pipeline Taiwan, Singapore, Australia, the United States. So you see, we start creating this kind of a logic from different cultural backgrounds uh, that we think it could really feed uh, and speed the change. So I, I can't resist asking you with all the sort of incredible negative news coming out around AI right now and letters being signed to check it, balance it, stop it. What's your view and, and what is its potential gift to this second billion? So Honestly, can I tell you, it just surprised me a little. Since I was in that business, the yeah. topic, the ethics of AI was clearly, and I had that title in 2018. Yeah. And, uh, we were starting working heavily and there would be already consortium of the big players. If you check out, we're already established in 2017 or 19. There were two different ones in which you have the big player, the Amazons, the Facebook at that time, the IBM, the Microsoft, which already together were working on designing and developing an ethical AI. Ethical means must be explainable, must be non-biased, must be understandable, must be transferable, must be secure. So all pillars that already has been established since then. Now, obviously, what is the big change? That some of these, I would say, is quite sophisticated tools and machine learning techniques has come to our door in the everyday life which somehow raised up the point to the general public because before it was a discussion between, let's say, tech people within tech people. Yep. So nobody could see the importance of building an ethical AI also because, for example, we just keep forgiving the algorithms were biased. Yep. Think about the insurance, uh, designing premiums for people are based on the fact if you're a woman, therefore you will live a certain kind of life, therefore you work less than a man. Still those reasons why uh, women receive less payback, let me say, are inside the bias data that has been there forever. So there is a positive side on this AI coming to the everyday life in our kitchens, literally, because it raised the, the spotlight on the importance of now reviewing how these decisions are made by systems. The systems are becoming very powerful. If the data are bad, they will spit out bad outcomes. So there is a first point about the quality of the data that the AI is processing. But now systems like large language models are literally picking up the, the data. And honestly, their job is just to be very good in finalizing a sentence. So therefore, they just do a prediction about what could be the next word. But it's impressive when you see in actions is that sometimes they're sorting out some of this uh, feedback that are coming from the existing data. And therefore, I think one to double check still for quite a long time, the quality of that output, which is anyway impressive. The third point, obviously, there's a lot of challenges on some intellectual jobs, I would say, that we always have heard in the past, oh, they could come. But what happened when Gutenberg designed a system that was just putting in crisis the manuscript, right? So we already went through or been through this type of, let me say, heavy innovation in which machines somehow are facilitating some processes, which I guess is one of the issues we have to deal with. The last one I would say is about the security. So the speed and acceleration and how, 
let me say, wrong contents, fake information or scams could be delivered using the system, it would become hypersonic, let me say this way. These are all, let me say, some of the challenges we have. But obviously, on the other hand, you can give access to very powerful machine to the majority of people. So my point, given the topic I'm covering, that's my domain, <coughs> I am keep on saying, okay, do we ever try to give uh, systematically ChatGPT, just to mention one of these technologies, to people over 90? What are the prompts they were going to write? Are we missing something if we don't involve them to suggest us what could be a better way of leveraging this intelligence? So if you go on LinkedIn, you're you know, submerged by people suggesting prompts. I still haven't seen prompts coming from older persons. I'm quite curious to see what could be the contribution of our process of aging on how we can feed and leverage that technology to provide us feedback, which I think we still don't know. So we're working a little bit on that domain. I hope we can do something in a, in a quite short time from today. But there's a lot of potential allowing us to, let me say, democratize access to what is a knowledge that we think it could be very relevant for many others. So honestly, I see more positive sides than negative ones. Okay. I know that uh, the old are going to flourish if they get you harnessing the power of AI in their favor. You're teaching me a lot of new words as I converse with you about the, uh, the shift toward this longevity society. One that I hadn't heard before is the exposome and how it impacts our aging. So can you share a little bit, what is this word and what's the idea behind it? I think it's an idea behind where the world is going. Now, realizing the importance of the factors that matters to our life, we mentioned before the environment, for example, is one of the factors that influence health. Something that obviously we were aware, but not aware as we are today. So we're literally now seeing the effect of the job done by the by ourselves as human beings on this planet in the last uh, 60, 80, 90 years. We couldn't see it before because we didn't have the data. We didn't realize that all the idea of progress that obviously is driving us as human beings, and it will be there forever. Do not misunderstand me. It won't change a lot. But the point is that at that time, in the post-war or in the different stages of our industrial revolution, we were always looking forward and thinking how better we can improve our productions and uh, you know our performance, our quality of life with a quote around the quality, because now we're understanding the quality of life is not necessarily having 15 cars or you know, eating uh, junk food in front of a television. But maybe 40 years ago, that was a kind of an aspiration for many of us. So the fact that we're understanding more about what are the influences around our trajectory of life are now understood. Another science which is coding it. So the exposome, for example, is a way on how you can understand and approach the different components that are affecting the stages of our life from all the dimensions, from the environmental dimension, from our own behaviors, from factors that are influencing us even before we, we were born. And it's so important because finally, if it was a, such a complicated science, because you can summarize in a way, or you would like to boil the ocean of life, which is somehow the exposome is looking at, but it's looking at it from a, a very strong and solid scientific perspective, also strongly, obviously, based on data. Now we have the data. Now we also have the machines. 
it's not only the data. We were somehow full of data 10 years ago, but we didn't have computing capacity to process those data or techniques to better leverage those data, which is happening now. And it's happening also in the evolution of the computer logic, the computing logic. We still don't know if quantum computing will be the right solution to deal with all this data, but we see a light that could be one way in which we can literally start processing this huge amount of data. So the exposome somehow is allowing to understand more about what it could influence or influence or have influenced our life, our health, and therefore help us to change the trajectory in case this should have be needed if our trajectory is not correct. So see it, let me say, as a big lens through which you can see the perspective of life. It sounds like a gigantic constellation of influences over yeah. these hundred years that we're going to be alive. So the other concept I wanted you to bring to life is this invitation of a shift in thinking from multiple generations. Everybody talks about boomers and millennials and Gen Z to a single fluid generation. Oh, what does that mean? Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, no, that's, it's a good point. It's a little provocation. I mean, since we're innovators, we me- must be a little provocative, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, you know, the concept of generation has been established r- roughly in the 90s. So it's very, very recent, honestly. And it's uh, been designed for marketing purpose to frame better the market targets to whom we were talking to. And I, and I think it's a very powerful way for us to give a sense of how we can literally deliver some messages. But it's become quite, uh, let me say, meaningless. If you think about that around the concept generation, we're framing literally behaviors of millions of people thinking that they're just born in a time frame. They should have to behave consistently which is somehow silly if you think uh, more in perspective. Yes, there are some common factors, but we are probably relying too much on those common factors and too few on the individuality that are part of that cohorts of of an age. So this is something that somehow is also generating a kind of a fracture. So do not misunderstand me. There will always be a societal, let me say, struggle between the different stages of life. Think about the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, and we can see all these changes happening literally at the the cuspid of one decade after the other. And this is going to happen. And one generation, most of the time, it tends to be against or challenging the others, not necessarily against. But on top of this, we have built a sort of of a fracture that led us to some crazy headlines when, for example, Greta and Trump found themselves one against the other. Now, obviously, they have different ways of seeing the world. But if you think about the fact that someone was writing that the young generation are totally against the old ones or the old one hate the young because they're just doing this type of crazy protest, it's basically something for the headlines of a, of a magazine or a newspaper. It's not what's happening in reality. Because, for example, the older generation are so worried about the planet For themselves, yes, but moreover, for the younger generation, they feel the responsibility of. So we think there is only one way, in our opinion, to build a new society in the future and just to get rid of this idea of the generations one against the other and have this generation to start being more connected together. So theoretically, instead of keep on framing the generation, why don't we think it one fluid generation in which you are part of because you are transitioning? Yes, you were born in one age, but you're just moving forward the different generation in your different stages of life. And therefore, it's a kind of a fluid flow that it's somehow we can see in reality 
the fact that Joe Biden has been strongly supported by the Gen Z, if we stick for the genera- to the generation for a second, is suggesting us that this movement and how a generation can expand and believe one each other and cooperate together, it's not a far to be real. So we think probably have to start believing that instead of keep on working on dividing the generation, maybe there is a possibility to have them far more fluid together. And if you think of the potential you have, especially in the workplace, where today five or four generations are working together, living together, and if you keep on framing them, you're literally losing the opportunity to create the innovation that companies and society needs. So we think there's an opportunity to have the push for a fluid generation that is what we hope is going to happen in the future. I don't know if it will be boring, but I don't think so. <laughs> I love that idea. I think it is It's so much a piece of framing, isn't it? That uh, uh, yeah. for so long, this idea of, and that is so driven by marketing. I think you're absolutely right. That's, yeah, so, that's so divisive and then divides people up and labels them into nice little boxes. When I love your image of changing it into a kind of fluid river where one, one a live bunch of humans is passing on the baton to future generations. It's, it, it's, it is. It's a question of words and metaphors a lot, isn't it? Uh, it is. I totally agree. And you say this so well again, as usual. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, one last rebrand you're pushing for where the words matter. So I'm, I'm always fascinated by how much words matter when you're trying to change human understanding. And your last concept is of shifting from the concept of aging societies to longevity-ready ones. So what does that move imply? And what are, what's Nika doing in that space? Yeah, I think we can even push forward and say there's a longevity society already happening. I think it's, a, it's a something that is important that we start to understand because it's, it's what is happening to us. We have been focusing the last 20, 30 years on the concept that the society was getting older and therefore there was sort of a a frame that when you reach that frame, then you are in an aging society and therefore you have to fix the issues that an aging society deal with. But if you switch from that idea to a longevity society, you introduce the idea of what are the stages of life, first of all, what are the influences that you could push towards the course of life instead of waiting for, quote-unquote, an aging society, be part of a a society that is living longer by design. That's what's going to happen. Every 10 years in the last 50, we gain two years every 10, meaning that there is something happening that we don't control because it's made by several factors, research and, and, and behaviors first, and obviously education which are suggesting that uh, there's a different way of uh, how we can understand our trajectory of life as humanity. And instead of framing it in simply the waiting or the changing of the page, the turning of the page of becoming old, start understanding the process of age, of aging. It's a lifelong process and it's a lifelong process that you can influence since you are born, as we said before, with the exposome, even before. And therefore, introduce a completely different idea about how you can also interface this changing society. If you think about an aging society, an economy that reflects it is a silver economy. So it's an economy for people which is, let me say, get, getting silver hair. 
if you introduce the idea of a longevity society, therefore you envision a longevity economy, which is interfacing people in different, very different stages of life. And it's also suggesting how we can maximize the life that we have ahead of us with the perspective of living healthier, longer lives. So if you get rid of the misunderstanding around the word longevity, that someone could see it as live forever or stay forever young, that's what we wanted to avoid. If you just take the purpose of the word longevity, which is suggesting how we can live longer, healthier lives, that's where we think we can push forward. And Nika is sustaining this interpretation of what are the drivers of a longevity society through, as I said before, the engagement of the people part of this transition and the information and the data that are available there that could allow us to maximize it. So it's really get on the bandwagon now, everyone. Don't wait for the pages to turn. Know that the book is going to be much longer. So it starts today. Well, that's a good segue to my last, almost last question, which is, so what's your advice both to, I want two, two advices, one to individuals and one to the organizations listening. How do they get on this bandwagon? What should they be prioritizing to start preparing now for the second billion? So I was on stage on a big event a month ago about finance, right? So I had basically the whole community of investors, private bankers, 2,500 people on, on the audience. Therefore, I would say is a good representation of a, a, a big community. And I didn't say anything different than what we have discussed so far. When I just ended up my, my talk, I think I received 250, 300 LinkedIn contacts. You have no idea how many mails, how, how many people reach me. Like I told them, there is, I'm sure there is life on Mars. And it, it is the same story that I told, I think, in the last six or seven years. Not very different. Meaning that, first of all, there is an importance of the when and the where, right? So it's important that all of us are starting introducing the idea of the changing demographic and a different society and us in the progress of this perspective of life in stages that are not necessarily the usual ones. And therefore, it's probably coming up the time. That's the feeling I had that day. I was in the right place at the right time to tell something that was so illuminating for that. Why it was so illuminating a month ago and not two years ago, it's hard to understand, but I think it's something happening in the background. So the first thing I would say is to everyone, organization or individual, is just to start looking at what is happening around us. Look at society around us. Look at the people around us. Look when you're on a line, on a check-in in your, to, to your next flight or, in a, or paying a cashier in a grocery store. Who are the people around you? And look how they're changing. That's the first thing that I would recommend everybody, because I think it's so important that we realize we're part of this changing society. Then organization, I would tell them they have probably the biggest opportunity they could ever imagine to redesign society. We have two big things happening to the planet, climate change and an aging demographic, meaning that it's time that organization understand what are the opportunity, sure, for their return on investment, but sure, for their return on society. Literally, this is the best time to make a change that can benefit your business as well as could benefit society because there are people there that still don't find themselves, let me say, recognizing in the offering, the products, the services, because still companies are talking to a different kind of an aging, not intercepting the change in demographic. To individuals, I would say is 
be proud of your age. We are ashamed about the concept of age. We tend to hide ourselves, to fake their wrinkles, to, to be offended if someone talk about age. It's time that we raise up the hand and say age is something absolutely normal of your process. You have to embrace it instead of fight it. And that should be proud of the fact that we're getting, getting old. It's, it's a fantastic sign to be the witness of a, a transition in our history of humanity. We should have to be so proud to be part of it. And we have to find the ways to help those that are struggling with it. From a personal perspective or from a societal perspective, there's too much inequalities that are affecting the process of aging that request us to be the ambassador, the provider, the supporter of a positive change. We can only do, again, if we trust this could be done within the, let me say, inner circles of our life. And that's why the fluid generations gets back as one of the concepts that we think can fuel this kind of I would not call it a movement. I'm not a leader of anything. I'm just a supporter of a change that is happening around us. I think that was a fantastic invitation to a massive wake up um, for yes. both individuals. and Wake up, look at the roses, look around you at the people and the gray hairs that are emerging and what is the opportunity here. And I particularly love the energy that I think every listener listening can hear from you, Nick, you yourself are a kind of massive turbulence of ideas and pushing to get people to listen. I'm glad they finally are. Thanks so much for being with us. It was my pleasure, Aviva. Thank you so, so much for everything you do. Thank you so much. Talk to you very soon. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. For more thinking about the impact of our four quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better. <laughs>